This morning's scripture comes from the book of Proverbs, verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and chapter 19, verse 23. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the light of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. So good to see so many of you here this morning. We are in the middle of actually week two of a series that's going to continue throughout the fall all the way to Christmas time, uh, walking through the book of Proverbs and just asking God uh, to make us a people who are wise. What we said last week is that it is not enough to be good and moral, though those are good things. We want to be good and moral, but it's not enough to be good and moral. We have to be wise. And wisdom, we said, it was we, just, we defined it like this. We said, wisdom is competency with regard to the complex realities of life. Wisdom is being in touch with reality. It's knowing how things work. It's knowing how things are. And it's being able to problem solve your way through life with that knowledge. So wisdom is being able to make good decisions in the vast majority of life situations where the moral rules don't apply, where what's right and what's wrong is fuzzy and not so obvious. Now, just one example. I was driving home. I got into the airport late last night driving home, and the only, um, the only basic, you know, talk radio I could find was Christian radio, and so I was listening to a program on Christian radio last night late, which is always kind of dangerous, uh, but two guys were on there talking, and they were just debating back and forth about um, the use of technology and how much is too much and how much you know, is okay, and, and when does it become excessive, and, and how much time playing video games or on the computer just becomes bad. And what was fascinating to me, absolutely fascinating, uh, I even sat in the car and listened for a minute once I got into the driveway because I just was just drawn into uh, what they were saying, not because it was, you know, a, a just a stirring debate back and forth, but because of this, because... Um, the conclusion they came to after all, you know, a few minutes of talking was that somewhere around five hours a day was too much. So basically, the way that the, the conversation got, got couched was this. Okay, anything under five hours is okay, uh, but anything five hours or above is probably sinful. <laughs> okay? So, I mean, completely arbitrary. I mean, com- just completely arbitrary. I mean, and, and everybody in the room would agree that too much technology, too much computers, too, you know, too much video games is, is bad. But what was fascinating to listen to the conversation was is the categories they were working with, uh, the framing of the discussion was all wrong. Because the only categories they were working with was what is right and what is wrong. What is good and what is bad. 
what is permissible and what is sinful. And the, the problem is, is there's always a third category. The question's not always what's right and what's wrong. The question, a lot of the time, is what's wise? We need wisdom. And so this morning we're going to look at this phrase that you find throughout the book of Proverbs. You can't really preach through Proverbs very long without dealing with this phrase, the fear of the Lord. It's a synonym, this phrase is, for what Proverbs means by wisdom. So we see in verse 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In verse 7 of chapter 3, be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord. And then again in chapter 19, verse 23, uh, it talks about the fear of the Lord. Uh, Chapter 1 Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is in many ways the thesis of the entire book. That's the purpose for which the person who wrote this book and put together these collections of Proverbs wrote the book. It's why he did it. Because you can't be wise without the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so if you have the fear of the Lord, then you will be a wise person. So I want to talk about that this morning under these three headings. The fear of the Lord, what is it? Excuse me, I did that wrong. The fear of the Lord. Why is it so important? What is it? And how does it change you? Okay, those correspond to the three points in the outline you have on the sheet, uh, behind the sheet where the scripture passage is. The fear of the Lord. Why is it so important? Why do we need it? Secondly, what is it? And thirdly, how does it change you? Okay, first, let's start with why. why. Why the fear of the Lord? Why do we need it? Why is it so important? And I want you to look at this famous passage here in Proverbs chapter 3. Verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Now, read the next two verses very carefully. Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord. Okay, that's the opposite. Be not wise in your own eyes and now the opposite. But fear the Lord and turn away from evil for it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now, walk with, walk with me through this just and kind of in detail for just a minute, okay? Proverbs 3, 5 describes two contrasting ways of doing life. The right one, right there, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And then the wrong one, do not, leave on, do not lean on your own understanding. And those two statements by the writer of this book are contradictory. In other words, trusting in the Lord is the opposite of leaning on your own understanding and vice versa. And then once these two contrasting ways of life are pointed out to us, then in verse 6, the Proverbs writer describes the result of choosing the right one. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. That is, he will make your path the right one, or the righteous one. The path that leads to life. Your life will work. You know, it also, that word also means a smooth path. So it's a, he will make your paths smooth so that there's not rocks and gravel so that you begin to lose your footing and stumble. Okay? Then beginning in verse 7, Proverbs 3, 7, and 8 restates the whole thing. It goes back and does the same thing over again. So in 3, 7, there are two contrasting ways of living in reverse order. First, the wrong one. He says, be not wise in your own eyes. And then the right one, but fear the Lord. And again, okay? The fear of the Lord is the opposite of being wise in your own eyes. And being self-assured and self-confident is the opposite of the fear of the Lord. And then in 3.8, the result of choosing the right one, because it, the fear of the Lord, will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You see the argument he's making. He's saying 
The fear of the Lord is important because the other alternative is so destructive. You can't be wise in your own eyes and be truly wise. You can't lean on your own understanding and be truly wise. And what we need is wisdom. But those two phrases here in Proverbs 3 are the description of the person Proverbs calls, chapter 1, verse 7, the fool. And I said last week, I'm really uncomfortable because I'm going to have to say you're a fool a bunch. Oh, it just knocks me up. But it's what Proverbs does. And so we said last week, and we're going to say again, on the one hand, if you believe, if you're here and you believe that you can make up your own right and wrong, Proverbs says you're a fool. If you say, I'll decide what's right and wrong for me, again, you're a fool. Because you see, the world, we said, was created. And what is, what is, um, what, what's true of the creation is that there's an order to the creation. There's a pattern in the creation. And so you, you can't say there is no right and wrong. That's out of touch with reality. There's a pattern in the created order that you have to pay attention to. And if you don't, life won't work. You'll be stumbling all over the place. This is what Proverbs says. So to try to live as your own authority is completely out of touch with reality because you're a creation. You're not a creator. That's being wise in your own eyes. Bruce Walkie, who I've, I will reference again, who wrote a commentary on the book of Proverbs, he says that this person he's describing is a know-it-all individualist who does things his own way. And if that's you, if you're here, maybe you're not a Christian, and that is where you are, I want to be your friend and I want to plead with you to stop and think for just one minute about that strategy for going about your life. Just think for one minute. And let me ask, can you possibly think that you're big enough or smart enough to be able to figure life out on your own? I mean, do you really? Listen to Proverbs 30. Verses 3 and 4, the words of Augur, he says, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One, for who has ascended to heaven and come down? And who has gathered the wind in his fists? And who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? And who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what he's saying is, is I can't possibly begin to know how to go about my life because I, I wasn't there at the beginning when it was created. And I don't see from a perspective that can take in everything that is true of the circumstances I find. I'm not big enough and I'm not nearly smart enough to think I can figure this thing out on my own. If you're here and that's you, Proverbs says you're a fool. But I don't want to just be hard on the irreligious people this morning. So if you're here and the other side of this is you believe that if you do everything right in life, your life will go well. <laughs> Proverbs says you're a fool. See, relativists and moralists are fools because the world was created, but it's also fallen. Remember, this is what we said last week. It's broken. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And therefore, if you believe there's only right and wrong all the time, there's never any gray, then Proverbs says you're, you're out of touch with reality. Life's messy. It's hard to know what the right thing to do is a lot of the time. And if you go through life thinking, I have got it all figured out and all those other people should really just be like me. That's leaning on your own understanding. And so what Proverbs says is relativists and moralists are both fools. And a fool, we said, is a blockhead. He's obtuse. He's unteachable. Bruce Walkie says, a person who is fixed in the correctness of their own opinion, self-sufficient and holds a contempt for wisdom which is rooted in pride... 
cocksure of his own opinion. The fool has no heart for education. So here's what Proverbs would teach us, okay? About what it means to be foolish. If you don't think you have anything more to learn about something, then according to Proverbs, you're a fool. If you're so blindly committed to your ideology or your way of doing life, and it doesn't really matter what it is, whether it's politics or theological systems or how to raise your kids or the option that you've chosen to school your kids, whatever it might be, if you're blindly committed to your ideology or your way of doing life so that you stop listening to people who disagree with you so that you might learn from them, you're a fool. If what matters most to you in a conversation is airing your own opinion about things rather than listening and trying to learn, then Proverbs says you're a fool. Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. (laughs) And so this description of the fool, of being wise in your own eyes, of leaning on your own understanding, is what the Bible means when it talks about sin. I want to get underneath this just a little bit more this week. Because you see, sin, we have to, in some ways, redefine or, or, or reimagine The Christian doctrine of sin. Sin is more than just breaking the rules. Sin is wanting to be at the control panel of the universe. And if you look back at the story of the first man and the first woman in Genesis chapter 3, it's just remarkable there because God reveals to us the root not only of the first sin, but of every sin since. And here's how the story goes. The man and the woman were put in a garden and told to take care of it and to eat of any of the trees in the garden except one. And do you remember the name of the tree? The tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. And it's a significant label. And of course, being given, despite being given complete freedom with the exception of this one tree, they sinned against God by doing the one thing he told them not to do. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what's, this is what's so fascinating. We're giving, giving insight there in Genesis chapter 3 to the way the temptation worked in their hearts. Because there was a serpent, and the serpent slithered up to them. And here were the serpent's words. To the man and the woman, he said, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now think about that for a minute. What was the temptation? That they would become like God, knowing good and evil. And then the text says, listen to this. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. It it just jumped out at me this week. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she ate. Now, what's going on? See, that's a story that's meant to teach us not only how sin came into the world, but also how it continues in the world and in our hearts. And my seminary professor, Bruce Walke, also wrote a commentary on the book of Genesis, and he put it this way. He said, this is so good, I just wanted to quote it. Unless we know everything, we only know relatively Unless we know comprehensively, we cannot know absolutely. Therefore, only God in heaven who transcends time and space has the, has the prerogative to know truly what is good and bad for life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents knowledge and power appropriate only to God. Humanity, in contrast, must depend upon a revelation from the only one who truly knows good and evil. But look what they did. They saw the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that it was desirous to make them wise like God, and they ate. So sin then is trying to be wise apart from God. Sin is wanting to live without God. Eve heard the whisper of the serpent, you'll become like God, you won't need him anymore. And she saw that the tree could make her wise, that she could call the shots, that she could decide for herself apart from him 
how her life would go. And so she ate. And what's fascinating is, is both relativism and moralism have the same goal, and the goal is to control God and to subvert God. They're both expressions of the sinful desire to be wise without God. Watch this. So when the relativist says there are no moral absolutes, he means... I'm the one who decides how things should be. I have the authority to decide apart from God what is right and what is wrong. That's wanting to be wise apart from God. That's wanting to become like God. That's the Garden of the Eden all over again. But you see, if there is no creation, and if there is no right and wrong, then you don't need God. You can control your life. You can become God, like God, knowing good and evil. But, but when the moralist says, see, I'm always right... Well, see, if you're always right, if you always know the right thing to do, if there's always a rule that you can apply and know which side, whether right or wrong, you're on, then you don't need God then either. You can be in control of your life. You can become like God, knowing good and evil. See, it's the same thing. And this is what's wrong with our lives, the Bible says. This is why we're stumbling and bumbling through life. Trying to be wise without God doesn't work. Trying to find life and happiness apart from Him doesn't work, there is no such thing. The solution, and what Proverbs is ultimately calling us to, is to become wise. And you don't become wise by saying there are no rules. You don't become wise by saying the rules are what matter the most. You become wise by getting to know wisdom. Remember we said this last week? Wisdom is a person that you can have a relationship with and In having a relationship with that person, it will make you wise. And so the path to wisdom in the Garden of Eden was for Adam and Eve to be content to live dependently upon God, moment by moment, every day, and it's the same for us. And this is where I want you to see. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says that you have to first become a fool in order to truly become wise. He says the only way to stop being a fool is to become God's fool. And so what he calls us to, and what I want to clearly call us to this morning, is you have to experience a conversion. There has to be a a, a conversion experience in your life where there's a change in the way you're going about doing life. That's what it means to become a Christian. And so John Calvin, in commenting on this passage, said, we must renounce our own understanding and allow ourselves to be directed by God, listen to this, as if with our eyes shut. And distrusting ourselves, lean wholly on him, placing our whole wisdom in him, and yielding our lives up to him. That's what it means to live with the fear of the Lord. Not to be wise in your own eyes. Right? To trust in the Lord, and to lean not in your own understanding. That's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, but what is it? And so let's transition to the second point. Then what is it? What does that phrase mean? And I want you to look at these verses, and I want you to see here, there really, there are three things Proverbs teaches us that the fear of the Lord is. It is, these three. Number one, beginning with God. Number two, knowing Him. <clears throat> in all your ways, acknowledge Him. And number three, ultimately, it's trusting Him. And so I want to take each of those three and just look at them really quickly, okay? So the fear of the Lord, chapter 1, verse 7, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning. Fear of the Lord means beginning with God. In other words, all of a person's priorities and values and opinions about all of life flow out of what they ultimately believe about God. A person's faith view of reality determines how all of their reasoning proceeds, which is why in many ways in our culture, a hundred years ago, when you were were talking to somebody who didn't believe in the existence of God, 
the way you would go about the argument with that person is, is you would begin to present rational arguments for the existence of God so that in the hopes that you could win the person through rationality to have to accept the fact that their reasoning was wrong and that there truly was a, a God out there somewhere. Today, that doesn't work because of the way postmodernism kind of creeped into our culture. What I would say to you is the problem with people who don't believe in God is not that there's not enough evidence for them to believe. It's that they have hard hearts and don't want to believe. The issue with the unbelief and even the atheism in our culture is not that there aren't sufficient proofs for who God is and how he works. The real issue is that at the beginning, our hearts are filled with unbelief and they're hard towards him. And what we have to deal with is not kind of diagnosing the evidence. It's that there's no amount of evidence that could, that could prove that to be true to any of us. And so the fear of the Lord means that at the, very, at the very core of your life, at the very beginning of everything, you start with him. Who God is, what he's revealed in his word, can't be peripheral. It has, to be, it has to be at the very center. He can't be a weekend hobby. He can't be option A. All of the different parts of your life have to originate and be held together by your religious commitment. So your ideologies have to start with God and what he's revealed in his word. Your scientific theories have to start with God if you're a Christian. Right? Your relationships with other people have to start with God and be centered in a relationship with him. He has to be the beginning. He has to be the center of everything. And Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, says it better than I could. He says, the question is not how can I use God to live the life that I want. No, the question ought to be how is the life I'm living right now getting me to God? And how must I change it? Because getting getting to know God is the most important thing. He says, the fear of the Lord is not beginning with something else and then asking, how do I use it? Excuse me, he says, let me say it again. The fear of the Lord is not beginning with something else and then asking, how do I use God to get there? It's beginning with God. So the question is not, how can I use God to live the life I want? No, how is the life I'm living right now getting me to God? And that's the path of wisdom. See, wisdom is being in touch with reality And at the center of all reality is the living God. And so if you're not in touch with the very center of reality, then you cannot be wise. So the fear of the Lord is beginning there, beginning with him. But secondly, not only is it beginning with him, it's also knowing him. And the the writer of Proverbs says, verse 6 of chapter 3, In all your ways acknowledge him. Know him personally and experientially. Not know about him, but know him in the, the core of your being. Know him... knowing him being reality in your soul. So part of the fear of God is being afraid of him. Uh, And in the Bible, when people had an encounter with him, they fell to the ground and they covered their faces and they cried out for mercy. But it's much more than being afraid of him. It's knowing all of who he is and what he's done. And so in Psalm 30, um, excuse me, Psalm 130, we read a few minutes ago, the psalmist there says, with you there is forgiveness and therefore therefore." I fear fear you. In other words, fearing God is not just falling on your face and being absolutely scared to death of him, though it is that, but it's also having this this sense of everything that he is and knowing even with him there is forgiveness. And when you see the God of the universe moving into the world and the person of Jesus to provide forgiveness for your sins, the psalmist says, my heart just explodes with the fear of the Lord when I think about those things. So the fear of the Lord is this life-rearranging, joyful awe and wonder before the greatness of who God is and what it is that he's done to save us. And the reason the Bible uses this word fear is because coming to know him, coming to joyfully 
awe and wonder at him is a humbling reality because his kindness is so unexpected. We're so undeserving. And so there's this sense of awe and wonder, which are weighty emotional realities. And the only way I know to illustrate exactly what it means to live knowing, knowing God and the fear of the Lord is the sense of, have you ever been in a really, you know, really close to being in a really bad traffic accident? So, you know, you're looking down at your phone or something, and you look back up, and you're about to ram 45 miles an hour into the back of somebody, and you put on the brakes, and you narrowly escape what is certain devastation to your car and possible physical harm to you and whoever is in the car with you. You narrowly escape, and what happens for about the next two minutes? You're just, you're shaking Right, your knees are just—I mean, you can barely compose yourself. You got to sometimes you got to pull over and go into a parking lot and just. Right, you feel fear. Your heart's racing, even though you're safe, even though nothing bad happened. You you still feel terrified at what might have been. That's the best illustration I know, the best analogy I can think of to describe what the Bible means when it talks about the fear of the Lord. It's not living in perpetual fear of him and cowering, you know, beneath his, the weight of his holiness and his justice and his wrath against sin, but it's the sense of knowing him and in light of his holiness and justice and wrath and yet knowing his forgiveness, even on the other side of forgiveness, you look back and there's just this kind of oh, fear of what might have been. And so... Fearing him is beginning with him. All of life centers in him. It's this sense of knowing him that leads to this weighty feeling of awe and wonder, but joyful awe and wonder. And then thirdly, and where I really want to land and finish the rest of my time, is that the fear of the Lord is beginning with God. It's knowing God. But thirdly and ultimately, it is trusting God. And the center, the core of this passage is in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Sin at the bottom is wanting to control your life, wanting to be at the control panel of the universe. But underneath even that is what the Bible calls unbelief. And what the, what the Bible says to me is that the reason I can't give up my seat at the control panel of the universe is because I don't trust that God is good. I don't trust that he will look out for me. I don't trust that he'll come through. I don't trust that he has my best, the issues my trust. And the great lie of Satan in the Garden of Eden was just this. Can't can you? Can you really trust him? I can't say it better than the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, which paraphrases the story like this. As soon as the snake, the serpent, Satan, saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Watch what they do. Poor you. Isn't that great? Oh, that's so good. Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. But then watch. Here's what, they, here's what the, the Sally um, Lloyd-Jones says. The snake's word, words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep in her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly she didn't know anymore. And so she picked the fruit and she ate some. And Adam ate too. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. See, that's the battle of sin. That's the battle of unbelief, is to be able to look at at what God is doing and to be able to trust him and not have to run in and take control and save the day. 
knowing in your heart that he loves you, that he's for you, and that he's working all things together for your good. This is, this is the battle of our lives. And the fear of the Lord, Proverbs says, is this ability to, to trust him despite whatever the circumstances might be that I'm having to go through. Elizabeth Elliot, who's a famous uh, writer in, in Christian circles, wrote a book, I've never read it, I need to get it, called No Graven Image, which is a fictional story about a missionary woman who mortgages everything, a single lady, and goes to the mission field, and the whole thing just ends up in absolute and complete disaster, and the book ends just with everything in chaos. Harold Ockinga, who was the editor of Christianity Today at the time, told her he personally kept the book off the, the, the CT list of best books of the year because of how controversial it was. Uh, there were a lot of people who were really upset about it because they said um, it was so outside of their understanding of the way God worked. They said God would never treat a dedicated Christian like that. And so a lot, large portions of Christianity just rejected the whole, the whole story. But of course, if you know Elizabeth Elliot's story, you know that the fictional book was also autobiographical because it, her husband and friends had been martyred years before in the jungles of Ecuador. But it was just too much for a lot of people. I mean, they just couldn't handle it. And I, do you see how moralism is really an attempt to control God? Right? If I sell my home and I go and I do these things for God, then he owes it to me to come through and make sure everything works out exactly the way that I want it to. See, moralism is option B to trusting God. It's trying to control him. It's trying to manipulate him. And, and the message Elizabeth Elliot was trying to convey in the book was this. She said... Um, If we had created God, then he would do everything the way we would like, and we would always understand him. But if he is God, then he has the right to do with me as he wants and doesn't have to explain himself. According to her, she said, if we have a God who we always understand, who always does things the way we would like for him to, then we have created a graven image for ourselves." She told another story about a sheep farmer friend in northern Wales, And every year the sheep farmer would take the sheep to a huge vat of antiseptic and completely, he literally would have to take them and throw them into this vat of antiseptic and push their heads down underneath the the antiseptic and and essentially drown them in it uh, so that every inch of their body would get covered because if they didn't, literally they would be eaten by insects and and, and parasites. And this is how she explained the story in thinking about the other thing I mentioned to you. She said, this is her, these are her words. She said, one by one, John, my friend, seized the animals and they would struggle to climb out the side and Mac, the sheepdog, would snarl and snap at their faces to force them back under. When they tried to climb up the ramp in a panicky way at the far end, John, the farmer, would catch them, spin them around, force them under again, holding their ears and eyes and nose submerged for a few seconds. This is just so marvelous. She says, and as their lord and master was pushing their head under drowning them at least as far as they could tell, their panicky little eyes would look up over the edge of the vat and it was easy to see what they were thinking. What is God doing? She goes on, I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. (laughs) There are times I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting at my good shepherd's hand whom I trusted. And like these sheep, I didn't have a hint of an explanation. Now watch what she does. She says, the shepherd has to do that to the sheep, but there's no way the sheep can understand. There really are two options. They cannot get the antiseptic treatment and die, or they can trust the shepherd without explanation. Those are the only two options. 
But the whole problem is that there's a gap between the intelligence of the shepherd and the sheep. And because there's no way to explain, the sheep have to go through the experience without explanation or else die. And here's what she says. She says, those are the same two choices that we have. There's a bigger gap between us and our great shepherd in heaven than there are between those sheep and that shepherd. We may never understand what we're going through. We may never know what it is God is doing. We're not smart enough to know what God does. But we're called to trust him. And I don't know where you are this morning. I mean, I don't know what I don't know what vat of antiseptic it feels as if God is forcing drowning you in. But what the eyes of faith are able to do is even to look and see even in that horrifying experience to be able to be raised up out of it to say, "I know that my redeemer lives, and that he is a faithful God, a rock who does no wrong." And Paul tells me in Romans 8, 28, that he is working all things together, even this, for my good. And so ultimately to live with the fear of the Lord is to begin with him and to acknowledge him, to know him personally. But ultimately what the fear of the Lord does is it leads us to trust him. To trust him in all things. And that's how you become wise. Now let me finish. So wisdom is leaning not on your own understanding, but trusting in the Lord with all of your heart. What Proverbs is teaching is you will never be wise until you first settle the issue of whether or not you trust God completely, totally, all the time, in every circumstance, with all your heart. And so how does that get settled? You have to be changed by the fear of the Lord. So the last thing I want to just talk about for just a minute or two is then how does the fear of the Lord change you? And the key in this passage is to look up in chapter 3 at verse 3 where the Proverbs writer says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. And those two words are very important. There are a couple of other places in Proverbs where they're put together. Proverbs 16, 6, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for by the fear of the Lord when turns away from evil. And then also in Psalm 86, 10, surely God's salvation is near to those who fear him. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. So in all three of those places, the fear of the Lord is connected to steadfast love and faithfulness meeting and touching one another and becoming a reality that produces the fear of the Lord in the heart. And that word steadfast love means God's hesed love, his stubborn love, God's unwavering loyalty and commitment to us as his people. The word faithfulness means his unwavering commitment to truth and righteousness and to vanquish evil and those who do evil. But Proverbs and Psalms puts the two side by side, his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And what happens is when the two are there side by side, it creates a tension. And in all of those verses, it is the fear of the Lord that's associated with living in that tension between God's unwavering loyalty and commitment to love his people and his unwavering commitment to truth and justice and to vanquishing evil. So how do the two get together? This is exactly what C.S. Lewis, one more illustration. I have a a lot of these this morning, I realize, but... One last illustration, my children, my, my son is reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe for school, and so it made me think, this is exactly the tension that C.S. Lewis is dealing with when he talks about Aslan the lion, as, as the children are learning from Mr. Beaver exactly who Aslan is. Lucy asks, is, is, you know, very nervously, is, is, is he a man, <laughs> Mr. Beaver? Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of the beasts is? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, says Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he, 
Is, is, he, is he quite safe? I shall rather feel nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver answers, That you will, dearie, and make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then, is he, then, then he isn't safe, says Lucy. And then the famous line, Safe, safe, says Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. You see, if God is safe, if you can come before him without your knees knocking, then that won't inspire you to trust him. Why would you put your life into the hands of a God who is, who is that weak, who's no stronger than you? But if on the other hand, if, if God is not good, then you should run and hide from him. <laughs> And so the key to your heart's trust is that God is not safe, but he's good. He's infinitely powerful and holy and righteous and full of vengeance and wrath against his enemies. But he's also infinitely loving and slow to anger and full of forgiveness and compassion. And the question the text begs us to ask is, how could that be? How could that be? The fear of the Lord changes you when you see both the steadfast love of God and his faithfulness coming together. But how is it that it can come to, where in the, how can that happen? How can God be both infinitely holy and just and also infinitely loving? And the answer, of course, is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the cross is where the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God come together. It is the ultimate display of God's love, of his commitment to meet our needs and do us good. And also his truth and justice and his commitment to punish evil. And so the fear of the Lord, what Proverbs is saying here, the fear of the Lord is a life rearranging joyful awe and wonder before the greatness of who God is and what he's done. It is seeing the high and holy God come low and become a man, a servant, become nothing. And be obedient even to the point of death upon a cross. And so when you look at the cross, and when you consider the almighty, infinite God becoming a man in the person of Jesus to suffer and die in our places, when you consider and look at that, your knees should knock. Not because, if you're a Christian, not because there's still any, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus, but your knees should knock at what might have been the same way at the, at the you know, on the other side of a near accident. But when you look at the cross, your heart should erupt in joyful exclamation of the love that God has shown for you there. But it's the cross, see, where the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God meet. And it's the cross. It's gazing at the cross. Jesus Christ crucified in our place where the fear of the Lord ultimately comes into our heart and begins to make us wise. You want to become a wise person? Not trusting in your own understanding, not wise in your own eyes, but a truly wise person who trusts in the Lord and acknowledges him in all of your ways. Look to the cross. And so I pray you do that as we come and sing these songs now uh, after I pray. Let's pray together, okay? Lord Jesus, you are the almighty God, the very God of God. Uh, the creator of heaven and the earth, and yet you came and were born in a cattle stall, laying atop of cold straw. You came and the kings and queens from the palaces of the earth were, did not attend your birth, but lowly shepherds and cattle and sheep were there to welcome you into the world. You are the almighty king of heaven and earth, and yet you did not come 
to sit upon a throne to rule over the universe. You came from your throne. You stepped down off your throne and you took upon yourself a cross that you might save us. And so the wonder of the gospel should fill our hearts with just amazement at who is this? Who is this God who would do something like that and thus produce the fear of the Lord in our hearts? The fear of the Lord comes from being astonished. And so I pray that as we sing together, as we listen to these songs, as we meditate for just a few more minutes before we leave this morning, that that the truths we sing about truly would astonish us. And in being astonished, our hearts would be filled with the fear of the Lord and that the result would be that we would become truly wise, that we might go and bear fruit that would glorify you. That's what we pray, and but we need, we need for you to make us wise. And so come and fill us with wonder and awe, that through the fear of the Lord we might indeed become wise men and women, that you might be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The only way to wisdom is to bow your life before uh, the sovereign, almighty, wise God of the universe. That's what it means to live with the fear of the Lord. To begin with him in all your ways to know him, but ultimately to trust him, to put your life in his hands and to take your hands off of your life and trying to manipulate and control things. That's the only way to be wise. That's what it means to live with the fear of the Lord. And the only way, the only way you can do that, the only way you can find the faith and the courage to submit your life to him is to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's for you and that he's committed to doing you good. And so look to Jesus on the cross and receive the words of this benediction which he has won for you. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is the Father's disposition to you, to bless you and to turn his face towards you. Now, if God is disposed towards you like that, why would you not lean not on your own understanding but in all your ways acknowledge him? So receive the words of the benediction uh, as an aid to you as you fight for faith to put your trust wholly in, in the Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.